TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. Allowed 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months. Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring. The flooring experts. Michael'sFlooringOutlet.com. It's that time of night, you can't stay uptight So come and join the people and I'm feeling alright Be run over Burnout America Over Burnout America There it is, Doug and Donna Always so good to hear their two voices on Overnight America Welcome I'm your host, Ryan Recker, on Facebook, Ryan Recker Radio. If you hate Facebook, but for some reason are still on it, just like me, you can go and like that page. I saw this real quick because just briefly, we're talking about another stimulus, and I saw there was a news agency, uh, DNYUZ. I've seen them before. I don't know how to pronounce it, but apparently 300 people or so, or 300 businesses, I should say, were qualified for relief loans, and they received $99 or less So they give an example of a few, like here's a woman from New Jersey. She runs a thrift shop. She got $27 in COVID relief loans. Here's a guy in Texas, a chiropractor, received a loan for $1, $1. (laughs) Here's another person, a baker in Oregon, $96. What a slap in the face, honestly. How, How terrible is that? What a joke. As they say in this, they say, that's supposed to help my business. Isn't that a joke? And lost income, forced closures, separation, distancing, and all of these things. And the government says, here, let me write you a check for $27. <laughs> so bad. And to think all of this money going overseas to help, all of this money going into places like the Kennedy Center to clean the curtains or build museums in D.C., all of which do nothing to try to help people when it comes to fighting COVID. Just sad, all the money that was wasted in these. And they want to spend trillions and trillions more. For some reason, they think, oh, this will, we'll get it right next time. No, no, no. We would never add more money in that have nothing to do with COVID. That's uh, just sad. Today, too, the bicentennial inauguration of Governor Parson. He was sworn in to his first full term as 57th governor. And he used his speech, much like a lot of other governors do, to try to pitch the state of Missouri, give a good old good old pitch and say, hey, hey, we're going to do this, Missouri. We can get this. We got it going. And it was kind of, you know, it was a good thing. He, he flaunts the states, the good things that we're doing. Almost 200 years ago, 
the great state of Missouri was established. This year will mark the 200th anniversary of Missouri's entry as the 24th state in the United States. Now, keep in mind, he's also from rural Missouri, and he doesn't say Missouri. Doesn't say Missouri. That's only for the politicians that think how it's said in the rural areas. What a great year to celebrate Missouri and its history along with all its people. As I stand before you, I am reminded of the hard work, passion, and love so many people have for Missouri. The countless hours people have spent to provide a strong foundation that gives so many people hope and opportunity in their lives. As we keep building upon this foundation, we will only get stronger. This is why. Okay, so the way he said that, I just, I'm going to play a little bit more, but the way he said that, I think he was anticipating people would clap. We will only get stronger. And then just awkward silence, no clapping. That would be the moment where you think if, hey, oh, we'll get stronger. Woo! Give, give one of those. Yeah, we're getting stronger. Woo! Clap, 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 clap. Nope. We will only get stronger. And he's looking around like, okay, no claps? No one? All right, I guess we can keep going. This is why Missouri is a great place to live. Why so many people have invested their lives into making Missouri a place for everyone. When I travel across Missouri, I meet so many different people. But regardless of where we come from, we all want us what's best for our families and for our state. From rural areas to the big cities, Missouri offers so much to so many. And others want to come to Missouri because of our values, our hard work, and our common sense approach. That is the Missouri I know. That is the Missouri I love. That's why I am confident in our future. All right. He gets a clap for that. <laughs> and there was still a little bit of a delay in that clap. There was a good, oh, almost a second and a half. I wonder if he was thinking, oh, they're not gonna they're not gonna clap at that. Oh, I'm not gonna get any claps. That is the Missouri I know. That is the Missouri I love. That's why I am confident in our future. No claps. Oh, he's like, whoo, whoo. And he at that, you didn't actually see it. He pulls a handkerchief out of his pocket and he starts to wipe his forehead off like, whoo, dodged one there. Okay, he didn't really do that. But in my mind, that's how I envision it. So this is what it makes me want to do. It makes me want to travel the state. It makes me want to get around and go to areas I haven't visited yet. Ever since I moved here four years ago, I've never traveled the state of Missouri. I've only stayed in this area. And I've been here almost four years now. I, I haven't traveled any further than St. Charles or St. Peter's even. No, I'd say yeah, about the, far, the furthest west I've gone is St. Peter's. So there's a whole other state that is completely different than this region. I really need to experience for myself. And maybe I'll do that sometime soon. Who knows? I just know there's a lot of other areas that people recommend for me to try. And I hope I get to do that. But makes me get the motivation to get out there. It does. It gets me pumped up. Gets me happy. 
Coming up in a few minutes, our friend Rich Rubino, American Politics on the Rocks. I'm going to talk to him about a few things in with the violence that we saw in D.C. at the Capitol building. That's not the only time it's happened. There's been other instances. So he puts that into some historical context. We're also going to ask him some similarities between Andrew Jackson, which uh, or Andrew Johnson, excuse me, that we had. Uh, and a lot of people have been comparing it to that, too. I wanted to get his take on it. Is, is there a big comparison to Andrew Johnson and what happens with the 25th Amendment or impeachment? Would they impeach a president that's not sitting? I mean, would the trial even go on? Well, it's an interesting thing because that's been considered, too. So we'll get to all of these things coming up next on Overnight America KMOX. Listening to KMOX has never been easier. Siri, play KMOX. He's the author of American Politics on the Rocks and Polita-Geek.com. You can find his work on there. He joins us Mondays. Rich Rabino, how are you? I'm doing well. What a uh, week, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of the uh, most uh, porcellus weeks uh, probably in American uh, political history. It's the thing that we do every single Monday. I say, wow, what a week. And it's you think, OK, that's evergreen. It's been like that for a while. So looking back at the Capitol and what happened in Washington, D.C. was a quite sad moment in American history. And just in general, I, I wanted to get your feelings and emotions as you were watching this happen, given all the history you know about politics. Yes, yes. No, absolutely. The first thing that actually my mind kind of came back to is kind of has this happened in history? And the answer is actually yes. Back in 1932, this was in the high watermark, I guess, if you will, of the Great Depression. There were World War I protesters that did not get their bonuses that wanted to get their bonuses early. So they were essentially camping out um, in Washington, D.C., in front of the Capitol. They called them. They called the little houses that they made Hoover bills, kind of making fun of the president, Herbert Hoover. Now, mind you, this is three months before a presidential election. Herbert Hoover was um, Herbert Hoover landed up losing in a landslide. Only won only won six states that year against uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Eventually, they essentially Senator uh, General MacArthur, General Patton, General Eisenhower, essentially um, you know landed up landed up essentially firing on them, and they had to, they landed up leaving. So that was one thing that came to mind that came to mind. And the other thing was probably back in 1954 when about five Puerto Rican nationalists uh, came into the Capitol and sat in the sat um, in the sat essentially in the chamber. And then it was, this was during a debate about Puerto Rican statehood. They were advocates for statehood, and they literally started shooting. And they shot about five Congress people, and one of them was wounded seriously. They all ended up living. So those are kind of the things that um, kind of occurred, and that occurred in my mind just looking historically. But the other thing, I mean, just from a, you know, from a common sense perspective, it's just amazing that if you look at these people, I mean, they've traveled, you know, they traveled from wherever they, wherever they were from, went all the way to Washington, D.C. They had to take an airplane. I mean, this was something that was certainly pre-formulated, that had certainly been in the works uh, for a long period of time that they were going to go to the Capitol. And the other thing was that the adversary was, it may have, he certainly was Nancy Pelosi, but it was also Mike Pence. Uh, Mike Pence, who just you know a few weeks ago was in Georgia campaigning with was campaigning for the Republican uh, senatorial nominees, who spent basically the entire year campaigning for Donald Trump around the country. When he said essentially did not um, support Donald, what Donald Trump wanted him to do in his role as the president of the Senate, uh, the they've essentially these people who are probably allies of Mike Pence prior to up uh, to it about two weeks ago, he was the one that became um, kind of the political antichrist. So. They really kind of turned on him um, in a dime, but I don't think this is necessarily uh, good. This is not necessarily going away, and I think that certainly during the Biden administration, there certainly will be these same protesters because, 
you know, Trump is just, Trump may be kind of the patron saint of the movement, but I don't think it's necessarily simply about Trump. And I think that there will certainly be um, certainly many more protests. But I think, the, you know, certainly there will probably be beefed up um, fortified security uh, for this. And certainly on January 20th, the day, which is going to be a um, certainly a um, very pivotal uh, presidential inauguration. Wow. That's an interesting way to look at it. The patron saint of the protest, even though he might. Well, this is what I think about in the future. If anything happens in the future, they're going to point back to him. He's going to be like the 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 thing they first think of. Oh, boy, this all started with Donald Trump, even though we've had issues uh, in the past. But the other issue is that if you look across uh, across the world right now, this isn't necessarily a yep. uniquely American thing. There are a lot of other countries that are having issues with people coming up and protesting the government where things have turned violent. And I, it's so weird because it was watching the coverage on that day and you're thinking, wow, this is crazy. And then all of a sudden, a dude in a Viking hat is the center of all of it. And you think, of course, why wouldn't? A guy yeah. with face paint like it's that Mel Gibson movie, uh, Braveheart, and yes, he's wearing yes. a Viking. Why wouldn't there be something like that in 2021? The whole thing is just so bizarre. But, you know, I also, thinking historical perspective, you have to, in a sense, put it in context. I mean, certainly did this during the Civil War. They had one of the biggest protests in American history in New York City, for example. Remember during the Civil War, they were drafting people in the North. They were drafting people in the South. Um, you had these elephantine protests against President Lincoln. And then remember, also, President Johnson was also very polarizing. Um, in 1964, when he signed the Civil Rights Act, you know, Lady Bird Johnson would campaign in the South. And when she would campaign in the South, what was called the Lady Bird Special, everywhere she went, there were segregationists holding up signs saying, go back, to ho- go back home, saying your husband's a traitor because he signed the Civil Rights Act and he was from Texas. And then in the second, the last, so that was the first few years, you had the right wing um, segregationists against him. But then the second two years of the presidency, you had a lot of young people who probably would have supported him in 64 and 65, who literally would sit in front of his limousine so that the limousine could not go um, in order to protest his policies on the Vietnam War. It got so bad that in about 67 and 68, uh, with some exceptions, President, the Secret Service told President Johnson that they could only really guarantee his safety if he spoke at VFW halls and if he was on military bases. Wow. Um, so and now, now that being said, he did go out and he did actually. Now this was after, this was in October of '68. He did actually campaign for Democrat Hubert Humphrey running to succeed him, but that was about two weeks before um, the actual presidential election. But they did tell him that essentially there are going to be so many protesters. I mean, everywhere he would go, they would be yelling, "Hey, hey, LBJ, how many boys did you kill today?" So if he were to go out and campaign, if he were to go out any place around the country, those people essentially would be there. So it was, you know, this is not something. That is necessarily unprecedented, and there certainly have been other examples, and there certainly have been other lightning rod presidents as well. I wonder if they're going to change the presidential limousine to be more like the Pope Mobile, because they're <laughs> going to have to like cover yeah. politicians, and just the way that they handle security in the future has to change. I guess looking at some of these examples you just gave, we go back and look at them now. Was there a time where things started to level back off? I mean, there's got to be a moment yeah. where uh, enough time has passed where the tensions aren't as high. Yeah, I think that in terms of the Civil War, so when the Civil War ended in 1865, and there was somewhat of a reproach, my, I think President Andrew Johnson, who succeeded Andrew, who succeeded 
uh, Abraham Lincoln, his essential policy was to try to essentially reconcile right away. He wanted to he tried to pardon. He had a rubber stamp. He just about pardon. Tried to pardon just about everybody who had been a sympathizer with the South. Um, it got to the point that actually by 1877, so there was re, so at Reconstruction there were troops that were essentially um, that were fortifying the South. They were protecting. They were protecting the. They were protecting the South. They were protecting African Americans, for example. They actually made an agreement in the 1876 presidential election, which is very close. Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican who lost the popular vote and actually lost a majority, and actually Samuel Tilden, the governor of New York, actually won not only a plurality but a majority. And so he ended up winning, and they made a deal in part that the Democrats, the party of Samuel Tilden, would agree to let Rutherford B. Hayes become president in return. They would bring the troops out of the South. So you had this kind of you know, perpetual war between the North and the South, um, Democrats being generally the conservative party in this, at that time who support in the South and the Republicans becoming kind of the Northern and Western party, if you will. But in terms of when it actually kind of you know, came back to homeostasis, I guess, you could probably say during the Hayes administration, you got back to normal issues, and then the, and then the Arthur administration and you certainly got back to issues like civil service reform and issues like tariff reform, issues that were not quite as volatile. In terms of the 60s, you know, when you had the civil rights and you had the Vietnam War, the Johnson administration was very, very polarizing. Then Richard Nixon came in. He was also very polarizing. Certainly, by the, in 1971, for example, when he expanded the war in Vietnam to try to liquidate the sanctuaries in um, in, in Cambodia, and there was so there was a moratorium around the, there was a moratorium around the country. But you know what? After nine, after all the troops left from Vietnam um, and Richard Nixon after Watergate, by the the latter few years of the the, la, the Ford administration and the Carter administration, there was a time for healing. And by 1976, issues that between Carter and Ford became very basic, became very ordinary. You know, they were arguing about inflation. They were arguing about job creation. They weren't necessarily arguing about what's going to happen with all these protesters on the streets, what's going to happen with war. And part of it, too, once the Vietnam War ended, there was kind of not a cause celeb for um, some of the anti-war, anti-war Vietnam protesters. So they kind of went home. And there was, you know, during the Carter administration, for example, there was no escalation of military hostilities um, overseas. And then eventually, um, the, certainly, certainly the first few, they certainly once you got into the latter years of the Reagan administration, the latter years of the Clinton administration, you had presidents who were extremely popular. So it does mm-hmm. come back, but it, right now we're kind of at the uh, we're kind of at the low watermark or the low ebb, um, certainly, of a polarizing president. Rich Rubino joins us, his book, American Politics on the Rocks, and his website. You can go and find some other articles, appearances, things like that, polita-geek.com. There's this tweet that was going viral, and it was something I wasn't familiar with in American history. It's, it, it, I just wanted to read it to you, and maybe you can put some context. It says, in 1983, Susan Rosenberg planted a bomb outside the U.S. Senate chambers to assassinate Republican senators. House Judiciary Committee Chairman Representative Jerry Nadler got President Clinton to pardon Susan Rosenberg. So it go back to 1983. What do you know about that incident? Well, I know that it was I know that it was um, that. Well, Jerry Nadler, by the way, so he's still in Congress and he was he's the chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. And he did get Bill Clinton to pardon. This is one of the 140 pardons that Bill Clinton made those last few days in office. It's kind of been overshadowed, if you will, by other people who were pardoned and one of them being Mark Rich and then Susan McDougal. But it was, you know, it was kind of a, it was kind of a solitary instance. It was something that, you know, got a couple of days worth of news coverage. But it certainly did not, 
Um, it certainly did. It certainly was not raised to the level of the Puerto Rican nationalists, the Bonus Army, or certainly the insurrection of last week. Yeah, and I'm looking at a photograph of it, and there's a good amount of damage done inside. It looks like a lot of uh, furniture was incinerated. I mean, it was. It just looks like a bunch of broken lumber on the ground. The walls are still standing, and it looks like some of the photographs are still on the walls, but definitely a lot of damage in that room. Uh, the idea that sometimes these things happen, it's amazing how they get lost to history. It's just, I, I look at this and think, how come I've never heard of this happening? And I'm sure there's a lot of those moments in history that, we just overlook or for whatever reason, don't get a much, uh, don't get a much attention. And I honestly thinking about what's going on in Washington DC today, I feel like this is one of those things they're going to talk about forever. I feel like when my kid gets in high school, they're going to, yep. the classrooms yep. are going to be talking about this. It's going to be in their textbook. And my kid's going to come up to me and ask, Hey, what do you remember about this? I feel like it's going to be one of those moments. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, it is interesting how some things kind of, you say, as you say, get lost to history, and it's, that's why it's so fascinating. One of the joy, one of the positive things, I guess you could say, advantageous about the internet is if you ever follow, a, you know, go to a story and you go back to something that happened in like 1973, and you look back and you you can find that you can find what actually happened. You can also find kind of sub stories of stuff that happened. Like I remember looking one point in 19, I was looking somewhere about Warren G. Harding, and I kind of stumbled across a 1923 um, newspaper clipping, and it said what it was about the new White House chef. I remember the headline said White House, it was a picture, of, it was actually a drawing of a female, and it said White House chef is not a man. <laughs> so what they meant, what, what, now today we would say there was a, their first female uh, chef, but at the time that was the, way, that was the parlance that they used, and so it actually said White House chef is not a man. And I'm looking at that and I'm saying, well, that's how they would have phrased it in 1923. Rather than saying this is a female, they said that um, this was a male. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find that a lot of times when you go back and look at newspaper clippings and things from different eras, it's amazing the things you can find out, just lost things that were in time documented, but it's probably been 100 years. Well, what year did you say, 1923? It's this probably 1923, been, yes. Yeah, it's probably been uh, a minimum of 80 years before anyone ever thought of that. <laughs> Maybe I, even 90 I years. <laughs> I think you're right. It was more the phraseology of it. Um, that's funny, right? As I say phraseology, I'm searching, looking at a book right now. It says the word phraseology. That's bizarre. Um, I guess there's some sort of a message from above. I don't know, but um, yeah. but no, it is it is bizarre how many things. Just I mean, just in, in recent years, for example, you know, go back, for example, in 1964, the United States under President Johnson invaded the Dominican Republic. In 1989, to get Noriega in Panama, the United States invaded Panama. Um, you had the Kosovo invasion in 1998, and this stuff is certainly stuff that is – or what about um, Operation um, Operation Firefox when Bill Clinton essentially evaded Iraq saying that they were not um, complying with the United Nations uh, agreement for to, to dismantle their weapons of mass destruction or the bombings or the sanctions in Iraq in the 1990s. This is stuff that – there's recent history, but it's kind of – I think once 9-11 occurred, the 2000 election occurred – and these really kind of polarizing times, that stuff kind of goes by the wayside. And eventually, you know, you kind of look back at it, and then maybe you'll find some sort of a reference to it. And you'll say, oh, yeah, you know, this is something that this is something that did happen at that period of time. And this is something that did happen that did happen during that period of time. I mean, just in the 1950s, well, perfect example. I mean, Harry Truman today is viewed almost reverentially, certainly around the country. But if you go back to his presidency, when he left office, he had a 22% job approval rating. He was the most unpopular president in the history of polling. Now, if you know, you look now, 
He's, he, now you, you, you think of Harry Truman and people view him in a very completely different light. So that kind of his unpopularity was kind of, in a sense, dropped, lost to history. On the other side of that, Warren G. Harding, when he died in 1923... I mean, he was viewed almost as a demagogue by some pe- by some in the Amer- by some in America. He was a very popular figure. Now you look back on him, if you think of him at all, he's considered one of the worst presidents in American history. At least that's kind of the common conception. So you know, you do lose a lot of things in history, and sometimes perceptions of individuals and causes certainly transmogrify over time as well. Wow. So after the break, let's talk about Andrew Johnson. And I know you've drawn comparisons in the past, but this will be good to revisit, considering that Donald Trump said he's not going to go to the inauguration. And then the 25th Amendment and impeachment, more things that are just on the table from the past (laughs) week, which is and some of which were even from today. So let's do that Uh, after the break. Rich Rubino, polita-geek.com. And if people wanted to find you on social media, what's the best way to look you up? Yep, you can see all my interviews on my Facebook page. Just type in Rich and then last name Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O, or just go over to Twitter and type in Rich Rubino, P-O-L. We're going to continue with Rich coming up right after the break. We'll look at your weather, too, on Overnight America KMOX. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The Step Back 3. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. News Radio 1120 KMOX. The voice of the Cardinals. And here we are in Overnight America with Rich Rubino. His book, American Politics on the Rocks, politi-geek.com, is the website. You can find him online, too. Rich, I know you've made comparisons in the past to Andrew Johnson, but a lot of other people are starting to pick up on that based on the fact that Donald Trump, as sitting president, would not be attending, or at least announced he will not be attending, the inauguration of Joe Biden. So more comparisons to add there. Yes, well, it's interesting. So Andrew Johnson, he comes in. As a point of history, in 1865, 1864, he became Abraham Lincoln's running mate. He was trying to show a unity ticket. Johnson had been a Democrat, and Johnson was the only Democratic senator from the South who did not secede um, when the who did not secede during the Civil War. So he, so as a result, Lincoln chose Johnson. But not Johnson was certainly not a supporter of civil rights in many respects. He just was a, somebody who supported the idea of there being a union. He was actually a very racist president. And Grant, on the other side, was somebody was certainly a, was a Republican, a kind of a protege, if you will, of Abraham Lincoln. And there was an issue during uh, Johnson's administration, actually, which was really kind of the one thing, if people remember Andrew Johnson for anything, was that he was impeached, in part because he violated what was called the Tenure of Office Act. And the Tenure of Office Act said that a president could not fire a cabinet official. He fired Edward Stanton, the Secretary of War, who he inherited uh, from Abraham Lincoln. So there was this impeachment trial. And Grant at the time was somebody who supported uh, the impeachment, and he was somebody who was actually an ally of Mr. Stanton. So Johnson essentially was impeached for firing him. 
and um, Grant was somebody who certainly favored the conviction. But during the so at the inauguration, the two absolutely hated each other. So Johnson said he would not attend. There was some sort of a, there was some kind of um, agreement. They were trying to make an agreement at the time that what if they were kind of rode separately and came to, and came. But Johnson said no, I did not want to go. So he basically stayed in the White House. Was actually with his cabinet while Grant was um, taking was Grant while Grant was taking the UFO office. That's the last time a president has not appeared at his successor's inauguration. There were other examples. John Adams despised Thomas Jefferson, had probably the most vitriolic presidential campaign in 1800. Uh, Thomas Jefferson won. John Adams did not attend. The other Adams, John Quincy Adams, absolutely despised John despised Andrew Jackson, his successor, so he did not attend. And interestingly, Martin Van Buren did not attend the president to this, the inauguration of his successor, uh, William Henry Harrison, in 1841. But history really doesn't know exactly why, because while they were certainly somewhat adversaries and had run against each other, their relationship was certainly not as uh, vitriolic. Um, there was certainly not the amount of vituperation as there was between the other three. I wonder what the answer is. Uh, and that's one of those great mysteries that will yes, it is. forever be unknown. But maybe one day you'll come across a newspaper article with some stipulation that makes sense, and you'll be the first to learn about it in a hundred and some years. So, um I, you know, I also wanted to look at the 25th Amendment and then adding oh, yeah. another article of impeachment. So, you know, adding a second article of impeachment after he already went through a trial a year ago. And it was what it almost was a year ago with when they were doing yep. this last time at the start of 2020. So when we look at this and we look at the way that they're bringing this up at the very end of his tenure, I want to talk about the 25th Amendment, how it's used, how it's meant to be used, and then them deciding on going to the impeachment route. So maybe we could just go 25th Amendment talk first. Sure. So the 25th Amendment is a gift to the country, I guess, by Senator Birch Bayh from Indiana. This was someone he ran for president, you might remember, in 1976. He actually lost to Dan Quayle when he sought re-election in 1980. So what happened is, when, right after John F. Kennedy's assassination, Lyndon Johnson addressed a joint session of Congress, and behind him was John McCormick, the Speaker of the House from Massachusetts, 72 years old, and the President pro tem of the United States Senate, Carl Hayden from Arizona, 86 years old, and if something were to happen to Johnson, those would be the next two people in line for the presidency. So there was essentially, they realized that there was a blind spot. First of all, the, big, the major blind spot was there was no provision in the United States Constitution for a president to appoint or nominate a successor as vice president if the president were to succeed to the presidency. So they took care of that. That was the main part. And so that's why, for example, in the next administration, when Nixon came in, Spear Wagner landed up resigning. He pled nolo contendere to um, a charge of tax evasion, and Nixon nominated Gerald Ford. Gerald Ford sailed through the Senate. Then when Nixon resigned, Ford becomes president. Ford gets Nelson Rockefeller, and Nelson Rockefeller sails through the Senate. So that's the main part. But there's also a provision in there about essentially the incapitation of the president. And they were looking at a blind spot in the Constitution and they were going back, actually, based to Woodrow Wilson in 1919. He suffered a stabilitating stroke. He could almost, he could literally just barely sign his own name to pieces of legislation. Uh, his wife, Edith Wilson, was very good in terms of making it surreptitious how bad he actually was. They hit a lot. They did not want Thomas Riley Marshall, interestingly, also somebody from Indiana, to assume the presidency. There was one instance where Albert Buffall, a senator from Montana, vociferous uh, adversary of Woodrow Wilson, came to visit Woodrow Wilson at the White House, and he said, I just want to let you know we're praying for you, Mr. President. The president looks at him with his wit and dexterous wit and says, which way, Senator? 
And then um, so the senator then says, I think the president is actually has a lot of dexterity. So they're able to fool the country. So they're looking for a provision. So what happens if a president is incapacitated? So they look at this blind spot and Birch by in the Senate and Manuel Stellar and the congressman in New York of in the Dem- Democrat in New York, who was on the Judiciary Committee, the chairman, wrote this provision saying that if the president were to become incapacitated, if the vice president and at least a ca- half of the cabinet agree, they could essentially, in a sense, depose the president and the vice president becomes the acting president. It was not necessarily met for political improprieties, but it can also be used in that respect. Now, there have been some times when, for example, presidents have had to go under anesthesia. Um, For example, President Reagan back in 1983, and then President George W. Bush, um, when he had a colonoscopy, that they actually had, they actually, Dick Cheney and George H.W. Bush, in the two cases, became acting president during that time. But it certainly is something that can be used for an emergency, and certainly if there is a president who's incapacitated, but also if there's a president that has unethical improprieties and you cannot get the impeachment process in time, that is something certainly that is constitutionally permissible because of the amendment. Now, when you say constitutionally permissible, has yes. can you think of any politicians in the past that have tried to call for it to be used the way it's being it's, it was proposed by Nancy Pelosi? Uh, yes, but only during that I'm aware of only during the Trump administration. Remember, the truly I mean, the Johnson and Nixon were extremely polarizing. So this was this was this essentially really started um, to take effect really right away. And it's amazing that it happened right away, because if this provision, if, if it were not for Birch Bayh and Emmanuel Seller, when Richard Nixon became president and then when Richard Nixon resigned, the vice spirit, there would not have been a, there would not, not have been a Gerald Ford as the vice president. There would have been Carl Albert. Carol Abbott was the Speaker of the House from Oklahoma. He would have succeeded directly to the presidency. He had no ambitions to be the president. But during that time period, after, first of all, after Spear Wagner resigned and before Gerald Ford became vice president, and then again when Gerald Ford becomes president and before the Senate confirms Nelson Rockefeller, he was second in line to the presidency. So as a result, um, the Secret Service actually was out in front of his, of his apartment, both in Washington and his home in Oklahoma, and very few people knew that he was actually that he knew who, why these people were there. And some people started complaining to the cops, and they thought that it was actually a group of hippies that were out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, one other thing I want to talk to you about, and Rich Rubino here with us in Polita-Geek.com, the website. You can also look up Rich Rubino on social media. But when it comes to impeachment, we're just yes. nine days away from the inauguration of Joe Biden and the end of the Trump presidency. And these articles, the one article I should say, uh, came up. To today where they want to go forward with another impeachment. Now, I thought, let me just make sure when it comes to impeachment, the idea is to hold a trial for high crimes and misdemeanors yep. that is meant to, if um, if found guilty, to remove the president. And in this case, there is no way that could happen just based on the timeline. So it, what do you think, bringing it at, at this time, the whole process of trying to go through all of this to send a message and knowing that really the whole mechanism that they're using has no time to, you know, cause the clock is going to run up before then. Is there any implications? Like does the trial last after his presidency? Yes, Could there that is happen? actually, okay, there is so actually not for, a, yeah. not for a president, but remember they can also impeach a cabinet officer. And there was William Belknap, who was the, who was the, uh, who was the secretary of war during the presidency of Ulysses S. Grant. And back in 1876, they found that he was charged with some charges of bribery. 
and he resigned right away on March 2nd of that year. But the United States House of Representatives went ahead with the impeachment. Actually, the chairman of the committee was actually his former college roommate, believe it or not, but they went ahead with the impeachment. They voted unanimously to impeach him. Then it went to the United States Senate, and the United States Senate, a majority of the United States Senate voted to impeach him, but they needed two-thirds. So as a result, he was acquitted even after he had left office. But now the question is, has there ever been talk of a former president being impeached? And the answer is actually yes. So remember, the, I was talking earlier about the Mark Rich pardon. So Mark Rich mm-hmm. was a fugitive, um, and he was a fugitive from justice that Bill Clinton had pardoned on his last day in office. It became a huge imbroglio. And Arlen Specter, the senator from Pennsylvania on the Judiciary Committee, said that there was a possibility that they could potentially impeach um, Bill Clinton for, the, for that. Um, other people, Don Nichols, for example, the senator from Oklahoma, the, the, the majority whip, said that potentially maybe they could potentially take a president's pension away, something to that effect. But that's another thing that somewhat has been lost to history. But it certainly is constitutional, and it certainly can happen that you can impeach him. So I don't think, I don't think anybody, reasonable person, is actually saying they're going to impeach and convict him quite that fast. But there could potentially be an impeachment, and it could certainly last into the next administration. And the question is, if they then have to have a trial, you know, that's something that certainly would take away from the first 100 days of Joe Biden's legislative agenda if they're spending an inordinate amount of time trying a former president versus, you know, trying to get his economic, his economic program through. So Joe Biden has been very improvident in terms of this. He's been saying essentially that's the Congress's responsibility, but that's certainly something that could hamper his ability, his legislative ability. Oh, that's interesting. I, I really didn't think of it that way. Could they drag it out essentially with the Republicans not really having the majority in the Senate and they can say, all right, fine, we'll just drag this whole process out and then yep. you won't be able to get any other business done? Well, I mean, the, Democrat, the Democrats would have the majority, so they could. Um, it, it was something that actually probably would disbenefit them because they, I mean, they obviously have the majority in the both houses. I think it would be, they, probably, they could probably do in the House, do it relatively quickly, and then it would go to the United States Senate. Um, they'd have to do something about the timetable. I remember, for example, during the Clinton impeachment, they made a deal so that, you know, essentially Justice Rehnquist, the time of Chief Justice of the United States, could spend some of his time actually working on the Supreme Court. He didn't have to spend all day long um, actually being in, being essentially, you know, just essentially an arbiter saying, I recognize, you know, the senator from Mississippi and um, sitting in the chair and making very few rulings. But it is something that could actually hamper his agenda. But what's interesting this time around is I think you actually do will have Republicans Last time around in the Senate, you only had Mitt Romney. Um, this time around, you're probably going to have universal support within the Democratic caucus, and then you're probably going to have some Republicans supporting it as well, which would probably lend some gravitas to, um, to, to the Democrats for, as opposed to hearing, this, hearing you know, people on the, on the right saying that well, this is a completely um, partisan effort. If they actually get Republicans, someone like Pat Toomey, for example, who suggests he should resign, Pat Toomey himself is not up for re-election in 2022, so he's somebody that probably does not have political ambitions beyond this. Mitt Romney would be another one. Susan Collins from Maine potentially would be another one. So if they could get potentially bipartisan support for an actual conviction, it would be very hard, by the way, to get the actual requisite two-thirds to get him actually convicted in the United States Senate. But just I think it's more looking toward history that they're probably thinking more so than anything else. So if people wanted to find you online, things you're doing, one more time, where can they look for you? Yep, just go to uh, Facebook and type in uh, Rich, R, and then last name R-U-B-I-N-O, and you can see my interviews uh, there, or just go to Rich Rubino Paul or www.polita-geek.com. Wow, testing a lot of hypotheses or hypotheses <laughs> or whatever, because there's a lot of potential things that can 
could happen that are unprecedented. It's really crazy, right? So Rich Rubino, American Politics on the Rocks, politi-geek.com. Thank you so much for coming on tonight to Overnight America. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it, Ryan. And he joins us on the Bomberito Automotive Group guest line on Overnight America KMOX. Now back to Overnight America on KMOX. Sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts, michaelsflooringoutlet.com. Isn't Rich Rubino great? He's so good at bringing these ideas and how they relate to history together. That's in the podcast. You can find it if you search for Overnight America. And that about does it for the show tonight. A few things from the podcast earlier. I don't know if you heard it, but I decided to do just a quick little tip of the cap to Rush Limbaugh, who turns 70 tomorrow. He's got some huge ties, of course, to Missouri and a great love for KMOX, the station that he really grew up listening to with Jack Buck calling Cardinals games. And what I decided to do was take Jack Buck's Radio Hall of Fame speech from 1995. That was on a Sunday. And then the Monday, the morning after when Rush Limbaugh was returning to his nationally syndicated show on the EIB network. Just like that. Rush Limbaugh spent just a couple of minutes talking about what Jack Buck meant to him and also KMOX radio. And I thought, well, to do a little, uh, Hey, thanks for uh, the memories rush. Let's, let's kind of do that. Well, so a twofer of KMOX archived history, which is now in the podcast section. If you search for overnight America, and I also posted a link to it at KMOX.com and under shows, if you click my name, Ryan Recker, you can find it right on there. Uh, they want us to post more stuff on the website. So I've been kind of playing around with it. It took me, well, I don't know. I, I tried it last weekend. Didn't work that great. And then over this weekend, I got the problems, the things I was doing wrong for it connecting up to the website worked out. So now I'll do that every once in a while. I thought that would be a good thing to put up there. And you can find at KMOX.com if you go to shows and Ryan Recker. That's probably an easy direct link to it. But, I mean, that does it for us here on Overnight America. There's not a whole lot else to say other than tomorrow we got some interesting guests, including a woman who documents some of the travels to the Arctic and very dangerous. How would you like to be stranded in the Arctic? It's essentially getting stranded on another planet. We'll also talk to Tom Sullivan and the things going on in the county tomorrow because we're going to have some more votes and swearing ins. That could be very uh, explosive there. And we'll also talk to Dr. Dean Finelli who will give us an update on how we're fighting COVID, what's the update on that, and the vaccines and how everything's rolling out. He was a great guest. We had so many compliments the last time we had him on, about a month and a half ago or so, a month ago, that I thought, let's bring him back on. Let's get an update on how these vaccines are rolling out. Enjoy the rest of your night. The replay hours are coming up here, and we'll be back again tomorrow at 8 o'clock. Find me on Facebook if you uh, are still on it. Ryan Recker Radio. Have a great night. Bye. My heart beats with the lonely rain See your face again Change the dial on the radio Find something playing kind of bluesy and slow If things were only like they used to be We'd be lying in love tonight I wish you'd call me on the telephone I don't
TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Yes, and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. It's better over here. After investing billions to light up our network, T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, right now, you can switch, keep your phone, and we'll pay it off up to $800. See how you can save on every plan versus Verizon and AT&T at T-Mobile.com slash across America. Up to four lines via virtual prepaid card. A left 15 days. Qualifying unlocked device credit service ported 90 plus days with device and eligible carrier and timely redemption required. Card has no cash access and expires in six months.